little disturbed at, at what just happened. I, I don't know what to think about this. Uh, I don't know what this, this stuff is. I, I don't know. I just don't know what that is. You know, little, I don't know. I'm confused. No, no. Uh, that, that was on fleek, right? On fleek. So uh, if you're under 30, this makes no sense to you. Or if you're over 30, this makes no sense to you. If you're under 30, you, you might have a little bit of an idea. Um, so, man, we love baptisms. Amen. Baptisms are awesome. It's a sign of new life in Christ, that uh, there is a new, literally, uh, God called into existence. He changed the heart of somebody. Just like he said, let light shine out of darkness. He has caused the light of the glory of Christ to shine in our hearts. And so it is just a wonderful thing to see baptism. So I do want to challenge any of you in here. Maybe you resonate with what Maria said last week in her testimony that you're somebody else uh, on a Sunday morning and at home you feel little to no joy, little to no love for Christ, little to no desire to follow him in obedience. Those are all, if you will, warning light signs, uh, check engine signs in your car that something is wrong. There's a disconnect. And that might be a good reason to come talk to myself or another trusted godly friend for wisdom and counsel. So uh, if there's any of you, maybe you're like, hey, I've never been baptized after I came to know Christ. Why would I want to do that? Why should I do that? Is that something I should consider? Then I would also love to talk to you as well. So uh, if, you, if that's you and you're interested, then come and talk to me uh, either after service or sometime. Not this week because I'll be on Big Island, but maybe next week. Um, and we'll talk about that. I also have to and would like to and am privileged to present for membership uh, Nicholas, Rebecca, please wave, the new couple. I wanted to present them together, so that's why I didn't do that up there. And my sister Lucy, where is, there she is, right there, right there, Lucy. So they have all gone through the new member orientation and would like to be presented for covenant membership at Kahului Baptist Church. So if you are a member here of the church and you would like to receive them into membership, let it be known by an aye. If there are any opposed, all right, all right, you're in, you're in, all right. So I will ask all of you uh, who have joined to be in the back, uh, and as well as Jesse and Miss Maria, to be in the back and let us shake hands on the way out and just love on you and show our support and encouragement. Uh, second, uh, or next thing uh, here before I launch into this, uh, we're going to have a newsletter coming out soon. I'm very excited about uh, as our church, by God's grace and awesome, continues to grow and expand in, in various ways, it's harder and harder to keep up to speed on everything that's happening. There's so much going on, and you, you miss a Sunday, and you're like, oh my goodness, what, 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 what's going on? So we have a newsletter that's going to come out. You can go on our website, kahaluibaptist.org. That's kahaluibaptist.org. If you just go to the bottom of the page, there's a, there's a link there for you to sign up for our newsletter. Or if you're like, Pastor, I'm already lost, just see myself or somebody and write it on the bulletin and give me the, your email, and we'll plug it in there for you manually. Uh, all right. Exodus 3. We have a new president. Lots happened this week. We have a new president. And one of the things is that although it's significant for our country to have a new leader, we have the same God. So although our country is in a time of transitions, our God is the same yesterday, today, 
and forever. And that has massive implications for us. That's what we're going to see in this passage before us. So what's going on? If this is your first time here, we just started in the book of Exodus. Now, we went over chapter 1 last week, and now we're in chapter 3. And so some of you are like, wait a minute, uh, where's chapter 2? Where's chapter? We're skipping chapter 2 for now. You're like, what? You're skipping? You'll see. It'll make sense. I promise. It'll all come together in time. We're going to come back to chapter 2. We're going to circle around, and, and you'll see some things. But right now, we're going to chapter 3. So chapter 1, we saw that God's people were in Egypt. So Exodus is actually not part one. Exodus is part what? Two. This is part two in a five-volume set. It is a continuation. And so we left off in... I have to kick something down. I hope it wasn't important. We left off in Genesis 50 with God's people, Joseph, his brothers, 70 people going into Egypt. 300 years later, at least now, God's people have now been enslaved. All of the brothers died. That whole generation died. A new king is in Egypt, and they've been oppressed now in slavery for about 300 years. It is a bitter, harsh slavery. It's a long time to be in slavery. Our country has been in existence for about 270, I don't know, 270 some odd years. So just think, they were in slavery longer than our country has been in existence. Now think about how much has changed since that time. A lot's changed, a lot changed then. They began to wonder if God had abandoned them, or even if there was a God who cared about them. And yet they cried all the more. And so we saw God's plan was actually unfolding for them because God made a promise to Abraham in Genesis chapter 15 and 17 and played out across Genesis that his descendants wouldn't be like the sand on the seashore or like the stars in the heavens, that you wouldn't be able to number them and that he would bless them. And then he also made a promise that they would be sojourners in a land not their own, but God would deliver them after 400 years. So God is unfolding his plan, and Pharaoh also has a plan. And this is the way it always is. God has a plan in our life for good. Satan has a plan in our life to attack the seed of God's people, and he means evil. And so Pharaoh's plan was to oppress them, to keep them from multiplying. And the more they oppressed them, the more they multiplied. And that's kind of where we left off, that God was fulfilling his promises. So let's jump into our passage and let's pray. Father in heaven, Lord, what a wonderful uh, narrative piece of history that Exodus is. And Father, may we remember that it really is your story. It is a story about God revealing himself to us so that we may worship you, so that you may deliver us and ultimately that we might be with you forever and ever. And I pray there are some here maybe who have never trusted Christ as their Lord and Savior. I ask that you would, uh, as they meditate and ponder on the words of these scriptures, as they see the nature and character that you have revealed to us, may you draw them to faith in Christ. We ask that you would strengthen your people, feed your sheep, strengthen them by your spirit in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, point number one, adoration in God's self-revelation. Point number one, adoration in God's self-revelation. So we just want to take some time to ponder, to meditate on what this means and who this incredible God is that 
we serve. Now, what started happening here in Exodus chapter 3? This is actually a very, very important passage. It, it, the whole section actually spans into chapter 4, about midpoint of chapter 4. This is a very important section of Scripture. This is where God reveals himself for one of the first times in his, almost his fullness of character in the Old Testament to his people. And he is going to be remembered for what he did here and what he's about to do in Exodus for ever. Remember, Exodus, the events of the Exodus are the redemptive focal point of the Old Testament. So whereas, as I said last week, whereas we, we live a cross-centered life, we look back at the redemptive focal point of Jesus' death and resurrection on a cross, the Exodus, the Old Testament, the focal point here was the Exodus. It was their deliverance from slavery out of Egypt and everything that God did around that. So Moses, we come in chapter 2, introduced us to Moses. The end of chapter 2, we find Moses kills a man in Egypt, flees, and lives in the wilderness of Midian for 40 years. Now, Moses grew up in uh, the palace, the temple of Pharaoh. He was trained by the Egyptians. He probably spoke Egyptian and Hebrew. He was well-educated, well-trained. He could read. He could write. And now he finds himself not in the palaces and temples of, of the greatness of Egypt, but he finds himself doing what is actually really detestable by Egyptians, shepherding in Midian and the wilderness. And this is where chapter 3 picks up. Moses is shepherding. He takes his flock out around the mountain of Horeb, the mountain of God. And he's looking for what shepherds do. They look for grass for their sheep. And all of a sudden, Moses sees something. He sees a bush on fire. Now, that is not stunning in and of itself. If you're a shepherd, you've probably seen many bushes on fire in 40 years, and they burn out, and they turn into a little uh, heap of ash and smoke. You maybe pray they don't start a brush fire something like that. And then you got to call the Maui Fire Department to come put it out, like the cane fields, right? That's what you pray for. That's what he's maybe praying for. Lord, don't let this thing start up and burn up all of the food. He sees a bush on fire, but something is immediately different about this bush. Because it's on fire, but it's not being consumed. It's just burning and burning and burning. That's enough to get his interest peaked, and so what does he do? He does what any young man would do. Anytime you see fire that looks interesting, what do you want to do? You want to play? Oh, let me go check this out. And so he turns aside to go see what this amazing sight is, and all of a sudden, the encounter he has changes the course of his life and ours. Suddenly, the angel of the Lord speaks out of the burning bush. Moses, Moses. And Moses says, here I am, here am I. And the account goes on. So what does this account reveal about God? 
Why a burning bush? Now, we could talk about the angel of the Lord. Was this a theophany? Now, a theophany in Scripture is a fancy word that theologians use for a pre-incarnate appearance of Christ, of the Lord Jesus Christ, the second person of the Trinity, that Christ, the only person who is ever identified as God, who receives worship from God, but yet is distinct from God the Father, is Christ, or this angel of the Lord type figure. So, some have discussed, is this, is this Christ, a pre-incarnate, pre-New Testament, if you will, appearance of Christ to Moses speaking out of the bush. Again, all these things can be up for discussion another time. But we want to see what, why is he speaking to him out of this burning bush? And what does this reveal about the nature and the character of God? So first, it reveals that God is self-sufficient. God is self-sufficient. What does that mean? It means that God is God, and God is. That there is nothing external or outside of himself that caused him to be. He has always been. He is the great uncaused cause of all things. Now, I ask my children, and I ask our preschool children, we go through a series of questions. Who made you? The answer is... God. Some of you guys know, what else did God make? All things. Now, if you start to ask that question at some point, anybody who has children will be asked this question, who made God? And you'll be like staring down the depths of the universe right there as a parent. Like, how do I answer this? Um... Right? And so what this means is that God is self-sufficient. He is the uncaused cause. This is part of what it means to be God. He is, uh, this is his aseity, his absolute self-sufficiency, self-generation. He has always been. He will always be. There is never a time when he has not been. He is God. And because he is God, that means there's nothing outside of God that compels him to act except that which is intrinsic and internal to who his nature is and what his glory causes him to seek and do. And some of you guys are like, um, pastor, I'm kind of lost. You should be, because we are discussing the distinct nature and character of God. And so if your mind can't wrap around it, beloved, please know for eternity, for ages upon ages upon ages, you will attempt to exhaust the depth and breadth and height and width of God. Amen. It will take eternity because he is infinite. What else does it mean? His self-sufficiency means he depends on nothing to exist. Isaiah 40, 28, he says this, Have you not known? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint. He does not grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. Now, why does this stretch your brains to the max when you try to comprehend this? Because there's nothing in creation like this to compare it to. Everything depends on some sort of energy for its existence. And yet, our God, he is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. Amen. Ephesians 1.11 says, He works all things according to the counsel of his will, of his own will. 
What else does it mean? We could just dive into all these things, but we're going to keep, we're going to move quickly. The fact that God is, that he is self-sufficient, means that all of his attributes have always existed in perfect harmony and absolute perfection. All of his attributes have always existed in perfect harmony and absolute perfection. We kind of struggle to wrestle with this, right? Is God loving or is he holy? Is he more loving or is he more holy? Or is he more loving or is he a God of wrath? Behold, the kindness and the severity of God, Romans 11 says. And so sometimes we pit his attributes one against the other, but yet they've all existed in perfect harmony and absolute perfection from all of eternity. And so he never changes. He is unchangeable. So his holiness is a loving holiness. His love is a holy love. His wrath is a holy, loving, judicious, perfect, righteous wrath. You see? All of his attributes cannot be pitted one against another. And I would say some of the confusion you see in uh, evangelicalism at large today and in our country uh, in a broad range when you talk about uh, either LGBTQ movements or immigration reform or any of these other things, some of the confusion comes because Christians are pitting one of God's attributes over against another instead of finding the balance of Scripture that God reveals himself. So, it is in our great interest to study these attributes, to know who this God is. Another thing it means is that God has no needs. He's truly the only independent being in the universe. He has zero needs whatsoever. Which means, when we talk about serving God, you can't ever talk about serving God as if He needed you. Right? Like, you know what, God? I'm not going to go you know what? Let's bargain. You do this for me, I'll do this. Please. What's wrong with us? Why does the Lord not just strike us down? That should show his kindness and inexhaustible patience with us. God is not served as human, with human hands as though he needed anything, Acts 17.25 says, says this, I quote, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. So when we serve God, we serve God in a in a, from a place not of, let me help meet your need. We serve God from a place of dependency. God, help me do what you have called me to do. Amen. This helps guard us from pride, from boasting, from thinking, oh, well, if Pastor Randy leaves, that church just can't, it can't function without me. No, 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 no. I am blessed. It is our privilege to serve the King of kings and Lord of lords, and he will build his church, and he will get all the glory for his work. Amen? Amen. God is self-sufficient. We'll move on. What else do we see? Verse 5, he tells Moses, Take off your sandals, for the place you are standing on is holy ground. Now, I thought about taking off my shoes, but I actually have a hole in my sock, so that might look kind of weird. I have holy socks. So, uh, no pun intended, right? But he tells Moses, uh, come over here, and yet don't get too close. And take off your sandals, for the place you are standing on is holy ground. Now, this is the first time in the Bible that the word, the adjective holy is ascribed to God. 
So first, it's been ascribed to other things, but for the first time in the Bible, it's now been ascribed to God, and he is letting Moses know, anywhere I am is holy. Now, what does it mean for God to be holy? We can't just, oh, this is just a big category, all right? But when it means that God is holy, to be holy is to be separated for use by God. So if I have a utensil and I'm going to use this in service to God, then I might wash it. I'll cleanse it, go give it some ceremonial cleansing, and now I'm going to pray and do this whole ceremony and sanctify this. I'm going to set this apart for distinct service to God. So that means this isn't going to be my cereal bowl, all right? This, isn't, this is a good cereal bowl. It's big, okay? But it, once I sanctify something, it is set apart for God. Now, if you take that definition, what does it mean for God to be holy, for God to be set apart for God? It means that he is wholly unique and in a category entirely of his own. There is no one like our God. It refers to his holy otherness, his distinctive character. There is nothing, there is nobody, there is no standard, nothing that you can give to compare his image and likeness. He is in a category of his own. That's what it means for him to be holy. And that tells us something, that his commands, take off your shoes, take off your slippers, the commands of a holy God in the book of Leviticus, those things that when you read through, you're like, I think I'm going to go to bed now, right? Uh, Whenever you get bogged down, those commands of a holy God are actually meant to establish a relationship with you whereby you can have a communion with him and not die. It's actually his grace to you. It is his kindness that he, because of the fall, because of sin, he can, we cannot dwell in his presence because of our sin. And so we must do different things to be cleaned so that our sin in his presence doesn't consume us. You see, this is a problem because if you're created for a relationship with God and yet by nature you are sin, sinful, you have disobedience in every uh, facet of your in being, body, soul, spirit, however you want to break that up, and yet you want to have this relationship with God, you cannot come into his presence. You see the, the problem here. What is this taking off of your slippers? Why does he tell him to do that? Quite simply, it was a sign of respect and honor. We kind of have an understanding for this. When you're in Hawaii, you come into somebody's house, you do what? Oh, bro, you can take off your shoes, bro. Come on. You get my, my floor dirty. No, right? In the mainland, you just walk in people's house, you just tromp around in shoes and everything, right? But you come here, you take slippers off. And so when you go to somebody's house, you see all sorts of shoes outside. It's awesome. And so everybody here wears like slippers or some sort of easy on off shoe instead of big laced up boots. So we have an understanding of this. Another way to look at it, whenever the statue in Iraq, whenever Saddam Hussein's government was overthrown, the statue was thrown, was pulled down, and what did they do with it? What did the local people do? Took off their shoes. They what? They threw it at it. You guys remember the the video footage? They threw their shoes at it. It was a sign of it. It's an insult. It was an ultimate disgrace. Or with George Bush, I believe, he was in a uh, press conference somewhere and somebody threw a shoe at him. So in the Middle East, this is still a sign of disrespect, of ultimate disrespect, that you would throw somebody's shoe. And then the New Testament, you see the disciples are arguing over who is going to wash feet. 
See, it was uh, unclean. It was gross. It was grotesque, even today. Like, oh, I don't want to touch feet. It was a sign of disrespect. So because of God's holiness, he commands Moses, take off your shoes, your sandals, for you are standing on holy ground. His commands are meant for our protection. Now, that same holy God is the same God who today dwells in his people by his spirit. Paul says in 1 Corinthians, you are the building of God. You are the temple of God. You are saints, holy before God. Why? Because you're so wonderful and great? No. Because God's Holy Spirit is dwelling within his people, and he is holy. See, God's burning bush, his self-sufficiency, his holiness, the fact that he is tells us that he is the same today and he is faithful. Now, it was the 241st birthday of the United States Marine Corps, November 10th, this past week. Any Marines in here? Any Marines, ex-Marines, prior Marines? The one we had went to be with the Lord Jesus in glory this past week. And I would say he lived this motto very well, Semper Fi, short for Semper Fidelis, always faithful, always faithful. And praise God for the legacy of our brother Dennis Sharoma, who was faithful to the end. And when we look at this God speaking to Moses out of the burning bush, the same character yesterday, today, and forever, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, which is how he reveals himself to Moses. He's telling Moses, I am faithful. I haven't forgotten. I am fulfilling my promises. That God is the same holy God, always faithful, who is at work in all who believe. What difference would that make if you meditated on that this week? Everything you do is holy to God. Would that not change your work? Where was Moses when God called him out of the burning bush? He was shepherding. Even in the time of Jesus, shepherds weren't looked up on, looked up to. It's not like kids would go up and be like, man, I just can't wait to be a shepherd one day. No, nobody did that in that time. Moses was working in obscurity, but Moses' work became holy to the Lord from this day on. And he wouldn't shepherd people anymore. He would, or uh, fish, sheep anymore. He would shepherd people. You see this pattern? I can't, I'm getting ahead of myself here. God is faithful, and that faithful God is at work in you. Another thing we see is this fire, this fire that God is, this as he kind of portrays himself, manifests himself to Moses. And throughout history, we have this kind of uh, God regularly revealing himself through fire. In the Abrahamic covenant, there were pots of fire that went and went between the halves of the sacrifice to help ratify the covenant. You see a, a God in a pillar of fire here 
shortly hereafter through Exodus with them all the way into the promised land. We see Elijah on Mount Carmel calling down fire, show yourself God, and and burning up the sacrifices in the contest with the false prophets. And many other places, the book of Acts, Holy Spirit came and they had tongues as a fire. See, our God is a fire, and that means we have this, this delicate balance because fire on one aspect of our lives, we depend on it. it. It gives us warmth and heat. It helps us to cook and helps give us life and sustains us. On another aspect, fire, when it is let loose, it destroys and consumes everything. And Moses will actually look back on this in the book of Deuteronomy and say, our God is a jealous God, a consuming fire. He's a fire that can consume. He's also a fire that sustains, which tells us that God is, although he is loving and gracious to sinners, he demands respect and honor. He is the King of kings and Lord of lords, which means we should not to be flippant about our relationship to him. He is not our homeboy the way others are our homeboy. He is our friend, but not to be taken flippantly. He's also a consuming fire. He is to be retreated with respect accordingly. This also tells us that God speaks and acts. Notice that every time God does an act in history, he tells us what he's going to do before he does it so that we understand what it means. In the most ultimate sense, he told us that Christ would die on a cross for sins in accordance with the scriptures and that he would rise three days later. If he didn't tell us that and Jesus just died on the cross, then his death and burial would be no different than any other man in history who died on a cross. would mean nothing. In fact, you can be here today and believe that Jesus historically died on the cross, was crucified by Romans. You can't historically deny that. You cannot historically deny that there are reports, many, many, many reports of his resurrection. You just can't do it. The evidence is too great. But if you don't know what it means, and if you don't believe what it means, then you're still dead in your sins and lost. But if you know that Christ was crucified for sinners and rose again three days later and promises forgiveness to all who repent and believe, it changes everything. Changes everything. So God speaks and acts. We also see that God sees, God hears, and God knows. If you follow the the line of the scriptures as he's talking to Moses. I've seen the affliction of my people. I have heard their cry and I know of their oppression. Like I said, 400 years of slavery now. By this time, his people may have forgotten him, who he really is. But God hasn't forgotten them. His promises to him are about to come to pass. There's a lot of encouragement there for some of you. Some of you feel like it's been a long time in the waiting, Pastor. My suffering seems like it never ends. It just keeps going and going. And when I think it's going to get better, it gets worse again. And this harsh, bitter oppression, and I just can't stand it. And I wonder if God even knows or hears when I pray. Hear God. I see. I've been watching 
carefully. That's what that means. My eyes have been on my people. I have not been just looking else, doing other things. I see them. I've heard their cries continually before me. I know what is going on intimately, and now I'm about to work deliverance. Beloved, don't ever stop waiting on the Lord. Don't ever stop waiting on the Lord. And then God sends. God sends Moses. He commissions, he calls Moses, and he commissions him. I want you to go to Pharaoh. See, Moses was 40 years in the wilderness as a shepherd. And like I said, this was God's providence preparing him to shepherd his people. Now, the lesson is ultimately that God uses seemingly insignificant events in your life to prepare you to do the work he has called you to do. So you think your life seems mundane, boring, blah, 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 ho-hum, run-of-the-mill. I want to I wanna do something amazing. God is using seemingly insignificant things in your life to prepare you for the work that he's called you to do. I love Moses because the first two-thirds of his life, he's 80 when he goes to Pharaoh. The first two-thirds of his life is spent preparing for ministry, and he didn't even know it. The last one-third of his life is spent doing what God called him to do. Same thing with Jesus. Thirty years of his life lived in most obscurity. Three years of public ministry, and God uses it to change the course of history. Amen. So you look at your life, and you're like, man, Pastor Randy, I just feel like it's just too late. I've wasted most of my life. No, 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 no. Beloved, when you offer your life to God wholly, you say, Lord, whatever you want for me to do, I'm, I'm going to do it. And sometimes, even when you don't say it, you're going to do it anyways. That's what Moses said, actually. I don't want to do it. Can you find somebody else? Well, you see how that ended. But don't look at your life and think, man, God can't use me. I'm, I'm too old. This old dog can't learn new tricks. No, 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 you won't need to because God's been preparing you all along. Some of us need to take a longer view of God's working in our life. So as this week, I want you to just adore God's self-revelation. Everything it means for God to be God. That's the biggest application. Just ponder on his holiness, his self-sufficiency, the fact that he doesn't need anything, that he is the same yesterday, today, forever, that he is faithful, and on and on. And then number two, restoration in God's rev self-revelation. Restoration in God's self-revelation. Revelation. See, when God reveals himself as he revealed himself to Moses, he's not doing it just to do cool magic tricks like, hey, watch this bush. All right, peace. Enjoy your flock, your shepherd, okay? He doesn't do that. When God reveals himself, he reveals himself with the aim to restore and rescue. And that's exactly what he's doing with Moses, both Moses and his people. So why did Moses write this down? So that you might be encouraged here in 2016. His people, he aims to rescue them from slavery. So that's what this self-revelation is. I'm going to rescue my people from slavery. Why Moses? You said Moses. What does Moses need to be rescued from, Pastor? Well, you remember 40 years ago, why did Moses flee Egypt in the first place? What did Moses do? He killed a man. Intentionally, knowingly, 
premeditated. He looked left and right to see if anybody was watching, and he killed an Egyptian and fled. It was the worst idea ever. And buried him in the sand. Oh, yeah, nobody's going to see. I won't get caught. Let's bury him in the sand. See, Moses had a criminal record, if you will. Major criminal record. Do you think that when Moses says, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh, that what he did is not on his mind? Do you think that his running away 40 years, that he would have forgotten that he killed a man? No. This probably, I'm reading in here some, all right, so you're free to disagree, but if you kill a person, when some of you have things you've done in the past, it's not even murder, and it still haunts you with guilt. And you think that that disqualifies you from being used by God. Beloved, know this, the presence of a criminal background does not eliminate you from God utilizing you to do mighty things. Praise God. Praise God. Now, all of this about Moses, when he's confronted, causes him to say in verse 11, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh? Who am I, God? So God appears to him in this burning bush. Moses, I want you to go to Pharaoh. I want you to tell him this. I want you to lead my people out. And Moses responds, who am I? Well, God could have said this. Moses, you've been trained in Egypt. You grew up in Egypt. You speak Egyptian. You know military strategy of the Egyptians. You know the inner courts of Pharaoh himself. You know the administration. Nobody is actually better, actually, Moses, than you. Don't give yourself such a hard time. Believe in yourself, Moses. Is that what he says? No. I think that's what we would expect him to say today. That's probably what some of us would say. Don't be so hard on yourself, Moses. You know who you are. You're the perfect man. You get a star. No. What does God say? What does God say? (laughs) I love what God says. God says, but I will be with you. See? Verse 12 in the middle here. But I will be with you. And this shall be a sign for you. What's God's answer to who am I? Nobody. That's what it is, Moses. Yes, you have this background. Yes, you have this training. I'm going to use all of that. But ultimately, you're nobody. The success of this plan, Moses, does not depend on how awesome you are. Who does it depend on? But I will be with you. See, whether it's the shepherd Moses who went from tending sheep to shepherding people or the fishermen apostles who went from fishing for fish to becoming fishers of men, God uses base things to do amazing works. So don't focus this morning. You're thinking, man, how can God use me? Or he can't use me because of X, Y, Z. No, don't look at your weaknesses. Focus on the strength of God. But I will be with you. 
That's the promise of God. If God calls you to a task, He doesn't send you alone. He gives you His very presence. Time and time again, this is going to come up for Moses. Here it says, when Moses realized it was God, that he hid his face lest he saw God. That's a recurring theme in this account. See, for Moses, he would his whole time long to see the glory of God. He's going to ask him directly, Exodus 34, on the mountain of Sinai, after the Exodus, he's going to say, God, I want to see your glory. I didn't see it in the bush. I want to see it now. And this is a desire for all of us. We just want to see glory. We want to see the glory of God. Everybody who's in Christ, man, I just I want to see Christ in glory. Now, the same is true with us. He doesn't send us alone. He gives us his very presence. And the awesome thing, the better thing for us on this side of the cross is that he has shown us his glory. You say, where's Jesus in all of this? We have seen what Moses longed to see. We have seen the glory of God in Christ. John 1.14. You remember the great prologue of John. It says this, And the Word became flesh, and dwelt among us, tabernacled among us. That's going to be important for the end of Exodus. And it says, And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. So what Moses longed to see in shadows, we have seen in substance in Christ. Or Colossians 1.15 says, Christ is the image of the invisible God. He is the image. Christ is the visible manifestation. It says, in him, or we'll just read it, verse 19 and 24, in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him, through Jesus, to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. God's revelation is meant to restore, and the fullness of this revelation in God's glory in Christ has resulted in our commissioning as well. So you see the connection. John chapter 8, Jesus is embattled in a back and forth with the Pharisees and religious leaders. And they're talking about, no, Abraham is our father. Moses is our father. They're dropping names left and right. And Jesus says to them, you remember that? Drop the mic and walk away. Jesus says, before Abraham was, I am. And it says they picked up stones to stone him for blasphemy. Jesus claims to be the great I am. Nobody ever spoke like that man. Nobody ever spoke like that man. And now, whereas Moses saw a burning bush, we see Jesus in the end of times in the book of Revelation with eyes like fire. Jesus is the great I am. And now, I would propose to you this morning, just as God called and commissioned Pharaoh to be an agent of restoration, he likewise has called and commissioned his people today, you. The Great Commission, Matthew 28, 18 and 20. After Jesus has been crucified, he's risen from the dead three days later, right? Just think about this. A dead man who was really, really, really dead is now alive. And he says this, All authority 
in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. And how does it end? And behold, pay close attention to I what? What did he just say to Moses? But I will be with Who am I? But I will be with you. Go and make disciples, beloved. But what? I am with you always. Some of you have friends and family. Some of you have coworkers that you're afraid to share the gospel with because you think they're going to respond like Pharaoh with a hardened heart. But God, if I go to Pharaoh, if I tell him this, he's not going to listen to me. Why would he listen to me? Don't you even know what you're doing, God? Use somebody else because he's not going to use me. And there's all these excuses as to why this plan isn't going to work. Beloved, he was with Moses and he gave Moses a sign. He gave Moses a staff. You guys know what he did with the staff, right? He had this cool trick. He said, throw that staff down, and the staff turned into what? A snake. And Moses thought that was pretty cool. And he grabbed it by the tail, and it turned back into a staff. And so he said, when you tell Pharaoh this, throw this thing down. And he's like, wa-pow. Check that out. And we think, man, if I had a snake staff, then I would tell my friends about the gospel. <laughs> right? If, if I had that, then I would just be like, hey, dude, you want to believe in Jesus? No. Wow. Now? Right? You think, yes, then I'll tell my friends about Christ. No, no, no. We have something better, far, far better. Whereas he gave Moses a staff, he gives us the sword of the Spirit, the Word of God that is effectual. It is the power of God. The gospel is unto salvation to all who believe. And we stand here doubting that if we tell our family, if we tell our friends, if we tell our coworkers, you know, I'm, I, who am I, Pastor Randy? I think I need to bring them to church so that Pastor Randy can tell them the gospel. No, 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 no. You are equipped, called, and qualified, not because of whether you have this degree or not, because I am with you always, Jesus says. All you have to do is speak to bear the gospel, the good news that Christ died for sinners. You say, is that all I have to do? Don't be discouraged when they say no ten times. It's exactly what Pharaoh did. God asks that you be faithful. He'll take care of the fruitfulness. Now, some of you in here, maybe you're here and you're different. You're visiting. You came with a friend or somebody who brought you here, dragged you here. Thank you for coming. Amen. I hope this has been at least somewhat enlightening. But you might be here thinking and responding to God's works in your life and around you, maybe like Pharaoh. See, maybe you don't identify with Moses. You might identify more with Pharaoh. Your heart's hardened. You've been rejecting what God calls you to do. Maybe you've been living in disobedience. For you, I want to encourage you with this. God will accomplish his purposes, whether it is through your bowing and adoration or through breaking you in judgment. I am here 
to plead with you to bow in adoration because he will break you in judgment. None can stay his hand. And I want you to know when you come to him, he is a God who is merciful and gracious. He is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. If you come now, you will not receive judgment. You think you'll receive judgment. You will receive grace, mercy, and joy undescribable. I want you to see for others in here, you've been living in disobedience, as a grotesque lifestyle maybe. I want to plead with you. God responded to his promises by the prayers of his people. I have heard your prayers. I have seen your oppression. I know the pain you are in. Know this, God knows your pain this morning. He knows the slavery that you're in. And if you will pray, if you will call out to him, it doesn't matter what the disobedience was, whether it be like Moses who killed a man or whatever else is on your track record, I will tell you this, if you will pray to him and seek the salvation that is available through Christ his son, he will hear, he will come down, and he will bring you up with him in glory. That is a promise. And maybe others, last, are calling on other gods to deliver you. It's the Egyptians. They had a whole bunch of gods that they called on. We live in a very pluralistic society. Maybe you're calling on other gods to deliver you, other names, other promises, but there's only one way. Christ. Christ. Will you call today and be free? Let's pray. Father in heaven, Lord, we thank you for just being God, that you are God, we are not. You are infinite in holiness. Your majesty cannot be compared to anything else. And yet you, tra- you come in your transcendent glory, you come near to broken sinners like us and you restore us. So we give you the praise and honor and glory. I pray that you would restore your people this morning, Lord. If there are some here who are, as I described, living in disobedience, hardening their hearts, Lord, would you soften them? And may they come and find that there is life in Christ, the great I am. In Jesus' name, amen.